Hey, it's Chris Garlock. For today's show, we're digging deep into our archives while we put together some exciting new shows. This was just our fourth show, released on December 3rd, 2017. And it features a roundtable chat with labor historians Joe McCartan and Leon Fink. Hopefully, we'll be able to get Joe and Leon back in the studio soon for some more of these fascinating chats. Our topics included the founding of the American Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO President John Sweeney welcoming the collapse of the World Trade Organization talks in Seattle, and the birth of Newspaper Guild founder Haywood Braun. Plus, Saul Schneiderman on Miners' Ballads, and George Farenthold on the founding of National Nurses United. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the show. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today for the week of December 3rd, 2017. I'm Chris Garlock, and I'm joined today by labor historians Joe McCartan and Leon Fink. Thanks to you both for joining us. Hey, Chris. Thank you, Chris. All right. So let's kick off the discussion uh, this week with the founding of the American Federation of Labor, December 8th, 1886, in Columbus, Ohio. What do, uh, Leon, you want to want to start us off? Sure. The AFL, as it was called, uh, was took over from a looser group called the uh, Federation of Trades and Labor Organizations, or FOTLU, uh, and grouped uh, 25 craft unions together in one federation. And the AFL uh, effectively succeeded the heyday of the Knights of Labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had taken off as a powerful social movement earlier uh, in the late uh, 1870s and continuing through the 80s. It was led by some pretty uh, sophisticated political thinkers who actually at the time came out of a a background in the political left. They considered themselves socialists, uh, even uh, Marxists to a degree, but they were hard-bitten socialists. hard-bitten in the sense that they were pragmatic and, not, and increasingly skeptical of how uh, far-ranging a labor movement could be in the United States and still sur- and survive and work. So they considered themselves uh, not only um, far-seeing, but also very pragmatic, very practical men. And that practical message came through loud and clear in their uh, program and in their actual policies. Joe, why don't you kind of sort of sketch a picture? Because I think, you know, today, you know, when we've got, you know, an American labor movement and have had, you know, for a long time, 
I think it's kind of hard to sort of imagine what it was like at this point in American history. You know, I think at the time unions were probably still not completely legal. I mean, what what, what was what was sort of the milieu they, that these folks were operating you know, in? They, they operated still in a rather legal gray area. A lot of their activities were prescribed by courts. Um, and it was a tumultuous period. Um, the year 1886 especially was one of great tumult. Um, the year began and you wouldn't have necessarily expected that a new federation would emerge by the end of the year, the American Federation of Labor, to displace what everybody believed at the beginning of 1886 was a, a giant robust organization, the Knights of Labor, um, which had been in existence for since 1869, but had really grown like a mushroom in the 1860s, especially in the couple of years before 1886. Um, but all of a sudden, things turned that year. Part of it was the Haymarket um, conflict of May uh, 1886, in which um, uh, a riot, so-called, took place in Chicago. Anarchists were arrested for uh, allegedly throwing a bomb, a grenade at police officers. The Knights of Labor got tarnished by that event, uh, in part, you know, unfairly. But um, that was just one of several problems that the Knights were facing. Um, they lost a key strike that year. Um, and their own organizational structure was proving to be ill-suited to the problem of how you bring and keep workers together, as Leon talks about in a kind of pragmatic way in the United States. There had been several efforts to form you know, large national federations like the Knights. There had been the National Labor Union earlier, mm -hmm. but previous efforts had foundered. Um, they often didn't survive economic panics, for example. So what Samuel Gompers and the others that gathered in Columbus to, to form the AFL were determined to do was kind of come up with a structure that could withstand the vagaries of the United States economically, politically, and bring together the diversity of American workers geographically spread out, diverse ethnically, um, all kinds of trades, as well as some lesser skilled workers. How do you bring them into one organization? It was a hard problem, and it really took um, people who, who really thought hard about the, the issue, like Gompers, like P.J. McGuire of the Carpenters, Adolf Strasser also of the Cigar Makers Union, like Gompers. These were the folks that were in the circle Leon's talking about that that thought about this stuff. So I would say uh, that the AFL basically plucked the strongest groups from within the Knights of Labor and then took them into this new federation. Uh, and for some time, uh, a lot of workers could be members of both. There was an overlap for a period of time. But ultimately, the AFL structure prevailed. And it prevailed partly because it gave sovereignty to uh, where workers sometimes felt that their strength was strongest, namely their craft or their particular occupation. So that whereas the Knights had been more community and even uh, politically oriented, um, the AFL focused on the workplace by trade and each national union could pretty much go its own way like the carpenters or the cigar makers. Uh, and beyond that, they gave up, to some extent, a larger transformative vision for the nation as a whole by sticking to their uh, a focus on 
higher wages and shorter hours, which, uh, which didn't mean that they were uh, conservative at all in their behavior. They were very militant at the workplace. It was the AFL. They led a, a lot of very militant strikes. But as Simon Gomper said, their mantra would be four wor- four letters more M O R E. You could sum up their uh, their goals in four letters. And as is also attributed to him, another great slogan: "The way out of the wages system." is higher wages. Mm. So instead of uh, 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 holding out for what they would consider pie in the sky, like a socialist future or even a cooperative future what the Knights imagined uh, uh, based on cooperative enterprises, they made their peace with effectively with the capitalist system, but they wanted workers to have leverage within it. Well, to, to two questions occur to me. Uh, one is so the you know the AFL. There are at least several other sort of organizations that tried to bring these various developing unions into some sort of national alliance, right? And so it occurs to me, actually, hearing you talk, that it's the American Federation right. of Labor, which which comes after the Knights of Labor. Mm-hmm. So it really it hadn't really occurred to me before. It really is. That, so the federation is baked in. Right. Can you? Talk because because the AFL winds up surviving. Obviously, mm-hmm. it survives to this day in the AFL-CIO. What was it that they came up with in the structure of the American Federation of Labor that enabled it to succeed where others had failed and to succeed for so long? Well, one of the things that they tried to do was to balance autonomy with unity. Um, as Leon said, within the federation, the national unions that comprised it, they had a lot of autonomy. Um, and, you know, this has been an ongoing thing for a labor movement in the United States, that is, in a country this big and diverse, how do you have necessary unity but not have so much unity that you sacrifice the autonomy necessary for workers in particular locations, industries, to do what they need to do as they see it within their industry? And so the AFL was an effort to try to strike that balance. Um, and, and I think one reason why it survived is it struck it fairly well. Um, it brought unions together to achieve the degree of unity they needed. One thing they needed to do was work out an arrangement with each other so they weren't fighting each other, raiding each other's um, jurisdictions, for example. And that was always a key principle of the AFL. In order to be part of this federation, uh, we agree that you, as a union, you get this form of worker to organize and you respect us having that form of work. And I want you to talk more about that because that's a famous Article 20, mm-hmm. right? And, and in that, the AFL-CIO. Yeah, so, so explain that, and but also talk about what happened before right. Article 20. <laughs> well, you know, the American labor movement, like other labor movements, has often been plagued by a problem that is called dual unionism, where unions... Uh, compete for the same workers and they end up undermining each other. One group of worker goes out on strikes, another union comes in and tries to break that strike in order to get that workforce. Um, how do you build solidarity that you know avoids that? That was a key issue for the AFL. So they struck that balance, they needed unity on that kind of question, but they also needed to, they felt, allow a certain degree of autonomy in the particular trades that Leon mentioned. I would add that in terms of how they would approach their goals and how they would 
step towards them that they uh, it's the AFL uh, era that that highlights the collective bargaining contract as the way that you advance as a union. Um, you, you write in specific clauses about working conditions, about who can take jobs, about issues like seniority. Their contracts were the first to highlight the theme of seniority or even questions about how to deal with technological displacement and how uh, and which workers would, would be the first to, to be displaced or not. So um, they were determined to protect workers' jobs and the principle of seniority um, by controlling the market in part for who entered the job in the first place. And this is both the, a plus and a minus for the AFL because on the one hand, they you know very positively and energetically attempted to say that employers should hire through the union, uh, through the union shop and even the clothes shop, that you had to be a member of the union to get a job in the first place in, the, in a particular trade. Uh, and that protected the basically the standards of that workplace. On the negative side, by excluding workers who were not union workers or who did not have the same skills and who could uh, therefore to try to protect their wages, this also led to racial mm-hmm. exclusion as well as exclusion of women in a lot of trades. Uh, so this is where the, the this is where the um, uh, the rub came in for the AFL and why they're often associated with conservative social policies, even though their principles um, were. Uh, in, in, in general, their, their principles was one of worker unity. One other question, <clears throat> sorry, before we, we move on, uh, has to do with the approaches uh, of uh, comparing and contrast between, say, the Knights of Labor and the AFL on political engagement. Mm-hmm. How did that scan? Mm-hmm. Well, Leon has actually written about this, so let me let him well, take a lead on <laughs> the, the, the AFL was very skeptical of um, political activity in a big way in the sense that they feared that workers would divide as Republicans or Democrats. And this is a classic. I can't imagine why they would think that. (laughs) So they thought we'd need to keep these kind of partisan divisions out of the labor movement. Um, And they believed also in a concept that came to be called voluntarism, that workers rather than the state should should, they should, uh, should handle most matters. That is, um, workers, even uh, social welfare, is better done through uh, uh, collective bargaining. Uh, and therefore, ultimately, we see that a lot of the, the labor movement was largely covered by um, health insurance under collective bargaining um, rather than a national health uh, insurance. So they, they would have liked to have had both, but they, they prioritized the one over the other. This is the principle of voluntarism. Um, Gompers, uh, to, to be sure, probably took this to extreme. I mean, he uh, was even skeptical of minimum wage laws hmm. or, or other mm-hmm. protective ordinances. He just he feared that the state, once it would come in, um, would then control the, the workers' movement. There's some reasons for um, to that. Obviously, you know, we can see in, in retrospect that uh, there was some. Uh, he, he had a valid point to a degree, but. He also um, left levers unpushed uh, for the labor movement by, by not pushing the, the political path. Um, so. Over time, though, um, that would start to erode. I mean, that was the ideal for the AFL. It was volunteerism. It yeah. was, you know, we're not going to be like 
partisan in politics. Yeah. But actually, 20 years later, by 1906, the AFL was starting to feel pushed and pulled into politics inevitably because courts were messing with it. Um, they realized they had to, you know, get more involved. They came out in 1906 with something called Labor's Bill of Rights. They presented it to both parties. They said, this is what we need from a party. They got more response from the Democrats than Republicans. And over the next 10 years or so, they started to drift more into the Democratic camp. Never fully, but they had to get more involved in politics, but always reluctantly because they came at it in the beginning, as Leon said, with this skepticism. Yeah, the, their mantra at the beginning was, in, in terms of stepping into uh, politics, was reward your friends and punish your enemies. Right. Uh, and over time, as Joe suggests, uh, they moved closer to the Democratic Party uh, and ultimately, effectively, a marriage with the party in the era of Franklin Roosevelt. So let's finish this segment with another uh, date uh, and, and this week, which is December the 5th of 1955, which is when the uh, American Federation merges with the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which we talked about last week mm -hmm. um, and which had uh, broken off um, some 20 years earlier. So, so, yeah. so that gets at you know, this whole question of what should the national structure of a labor movement be? And as we were saying, the AFL found a pretty effective formulation for how to strike the balance between autonomy and unity. But um, when it came to the Great Depression that started to break down, um, there was no necessarily no reason why the AFL could not have itself launched um, massive in industrial worker unionizing drives in the 30s. Uh, it could have done that within its structure, but some of the um, craft union leaders opposed it. That led John Lewis and others to leave and form the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And so you had for about 20 years these competing centers. Um, you had, that was, a, you know, the longest period of real dual unionism, CIO and AFL, and often they were fighting each other. In fact, their arguments with each other um, really undermined the labor movement in the late 30s um, and early 40s. It moved the NLRB in a more conservative direction. Um, arguably, it even led later to the Taft-Hartley Act or helped enable that. But by the 50s, um, that rivalry um, was starting to make less and less sense to either side, either the AFL or the CIO. <coughs> Uh, in part because the, the great era of expansion was concluded, right, yes, and, and they were entering an era of increasing attack by business um, and feeling the need to be increasingly united politically. One of the first things that the United AFL-CIO, which is formed in December of 55, does is it forms a committee on political education, and you can bring now together the the you know organizational power both the craft unions and the industrial unions and get workers involved in politics and that's a key uh, reason why you create a federation in the mid 50s so when and when they uh, merged you had a kind of um, uh, dominant and recessive gene operating <laughs> I would say yes, the dominant gene was the AFL gene represented uh, by George Meany, uh, who himself had been a business agent uh, 
Uh, what union was he with? Uh, uh, the, the plumbers. The plumbers. Wasn't it yeah. Meany, the yeah. one who was saying right. who, who who was proud that he'd never walked a picket line, or am I mixing him up um, with? He, uh, he did say that. Uh, yeah. he, did. Okay, all right. he did say that, and he uh, presented an image of labor as a as a very respectable force, and one not at all inclined towards. He washed his hands of any association of labor with social disorder coming out of the sit-down strikes of the earlier period. Uh, that's not the image that he wanted to have for the labor movement. Uh, and he also uh, embraced American foreign policy, uh, the, the Cold War down the line. Um, uh, but and, but his lieutenant, as part of the merger, uh, Walter Ruther uh, became the uh, vice president of, of the AFL-CIO. And Ruther came out of a much more social movement-oriented United Auto Workers uh, with more social democratic, even socialist orientation. He, he loved to go over to Sweden to talk to the labor leaders in Sweden. Uh, and he, uh, but, but he was, his, so the, the, the CIO still in, infused into the FLCIO a certain degree of the older 30s-esque um, social movement style uh, of uh, movement building, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, but they both, so they were kind of uneasily contained within the same structure. I love Leon's um, dominant recessive. <laughs> Never heard that one before. I have not, but I will here here to from now on keep using that. I think what I would say is that actually that that goes way back. You know, those genes go way way back. They were there at the founding of the AFL and what Leon described earlier, founded by people who were on the one hand Marxists, on the other hand hard-headed pragmatists, and um, that that mixed. Um, origin um, and those those tendencies were held within the movement in various forms over the years uh, and that's the form they took when the federation was mm-hmm. formed and in the 55. one uh, prominent uh, symbol of that was their mixed message on the race question ah uh, yes that yes. you've got the meany and many of the AFL craft unions holding firm to their old uh, autonomy uh, principles. We'll, we'll say who can enter and when, and uh, as re- and holding on to really a white uh, restrictiveness, uh, racial restrictiveness to many of the crafts. It wasn't until the the law started to, to break them up. Uh, these uh, white job trusts um, after the Civil Rights Act, whereas the UAW had uh, arisen as a, a biracial union. Uh, Ruther marched in the front ranks of many civil rights uh, demonstrations mm-hmm. alongside Martin Luther King. Uh, so the the labor movement as a whole was really speaking with mixed messages. And you would say, I think, even now down to this day, that this um, you know these competing tendencies within the labor movement continue to rearrange and express themselves in different ways. It was on the actually the 50th year of the formation of the AFL-CIO that the AFL-CIO started to come apart with the departure of a group of unions led by SEIU and the Teamsters that formed the Change to Win uh, Organizing Center, a rival federation. And um, part, part of that break has not been put back together still. SEIU and, and the Teamsters are not in the AFL now. and. And in a sense, SEIU represents this sort of movement <coughs> gene that Leon is talking about with its fight for 15 and um, uh, those 
kinds of fights it's been waging. Um, the AFL represents the more dominant gene in some ways, and the AFL-CIO has more members than uh, SEIU or the Teamsters, the Change to Win unions now. Um, but we're still facing, you know, a, a similar problem that, that the union movement has faced periodically before. What is the proper structure to bring workers together to deal with the immensity of what the U.S. economy is now, an economy embedded in a world economy? What kind of organizational structure best works? Uh, there's no consensus now on that question. It's good to know, in a sense, that we've been in periods before where that consensus hasn't existed, but we've also gone through periods where consensus has suddenly emerged, and that's that's led to growth and stability as well. Great. Okay, let's move on. Hello, this is Saul Schneiderman from Tacoma Park, and this morning I was thinking about why there are so many coal mining disaster songs in our folklore and in our folk music. Um and I know it has something to do with the fact that over 100,000 coal miners have lost their lives in the United States. But it took me back to a conference that Rich Trumka spoke at in 1984 when uh, he was the president of the United Mine Workers of America. And I took down notes uh, when he talked about uh, coal miners and the United Mine Workers of American music. And he said that our ballads memorialized our mine disasters. Our marching bands fortified us for long treks up and down the mountain roads, and our prayer songs enabled us to share our grief over the loss of loved ones. And, of course, our picket line songs, he said, helped us face the powerful corporations whose drive for profits caused miners to lose their lives. And um, I also thought about the song that Hazel Dickens wrote about the 78 miners who perished uh, in the Mannington mine disaster, which I believe was in 1968. And she wrote and sang, they lure us with money, it sure is a sight, when you may never live to see the daylight, with your name among the big headlines. Like that awful disaster at the Mannington Mine. So don't you believe them, my son. That story's a lie. Remember the disaster at the Mannington Mine. Where 78 miners were buried alive. Because of unsafe condition. Your daddy died. How can God forgive you? You do know what you've done. You've killed my husband. Now you want my son. All right, so next up, uh, December 5th, 1999, um, Seattle. Uh, John Sweeney, president of the AFL-CIO, uh, welcomes the collapse of uh, World Trade Organization talks. He says no deal is better than a bad deal. So, uh, Leanne, you want to talk about that? Well, we might remember that that statement was uh, broadcast uh alongside uh, a lot of uh, tumult in the streets of Seattle. This was the famous 
Teamster and Turtle Coalition. The Battle of Seattle. The Battle of Seattle, but the unlikely allies uh, coming out of the labor movement on the one hand and the environment, active and younger environmentalists on the other. And they were both taking on the consummation of another round of the World Trade Organization, which by the 1999 um, stood in for a larger phenomenon that we might call globalization or the global marketplace. And by that time, the global marketplace had wreaked a lot of havoc on uh, American uh, workers uh, and uh, Western economies uh, more generally. Um, so, but it, and it's interesting that um, this was a kind of um, parting of the ways for labor with a a, a world marketplace or a, 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 a world um, system, even trading system that it had once um, enthusiastically endorsed. Uh, the system that the WTO represented, the WTO stood on the shoulders of what had been called the GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades. Um, that came out in the late 40s. And the GATT was itself a part of the so-called Bretton Woods uh, Agreement that really set up um, the post-World War II system of business and trade, emphasizing free trade as a goal. The World Bank, the IMF, they all came out of the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement. And it's interesting, and they were symbolized, of course, the most famous aspect of that movement was the Marshall Plan in 1947. And General George Marshall, shortly after announcing the plan, came to the CIO convention, where he, he and the plan were greeted with enthusiasm. Uh, and the AFL and the CIO, despite some outliers, some dissent, um, became vociferous advocates for this world trade order. Uh, that would ultimately be represented by the WTO. Um, it was good so long as the economy grew and Americans could, could, we could sell our products uh, abroad. But when those products started to be made, especially the manufacturing ones, um, started to be made abroad, especially in third world lower wage countries, then that was a different uh, kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and ultimately the labor movement and workers um, reacted strongly as we saw most notably in the 2016 election, presidential election. Right. Joe, I just want to, I want to go to you, but I want to, I mean, just this morning I heard Paul Ryan justifying, you know, this, this tax deal, which is going to hand, you know, a huge amount of money to business. And his justification is basically world trade. Well, right. I, so, I, I mean, so I'm, I'm <laughs> and, and, yeah. So it's hard to, it's hard to sort of understand that. Right. But, um, but let me go back to what Liam was saying and, and try to approach your question this way. I think what, what happened in Seattle uh, in 1999 was hugely significant. And I think the significance has sort of been forgotten because of what happened shortly after. And I'll come to that in a minute. But um, what was happening in the 1990s was a really crucial transformation. This globalization that you, you, you say Paul Ryan is warning us about now, that was entering a new and really aggressive stage then. And um, part of that was ushered in by the WTO. And it, it was coming about during a Democratic administration, the administration of Bill Clinton, and he had <coughs> signed NAFTA. And he had uh, opened the door to this. 
And it was also happening uh, at a time when the AFL was going through a, a pretty profound internal process itself. In 1995, on the 40th year of the existence of the Federation, something uh, really um, unusual happened. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> that was a, a, a contested election for the presidency of the Federation. That had only happened once in the AFL. <clears throat> it hadn't happened in the AFL-CIO before this. Um, John Sweeney won election in 1995 on the New Voices slate, and he wanted to revamp the labor movement. Part of what he wanted to do was reach out to young people. Uh, Leon mentioned young folks. Um, there had been a break between um, the AFL-CIO, led by cigar-chomping George Meany, and the New Left in the 1960s. They did not see eye to eye at all. Um, Sweeney was determined to repair that breach. Um, and in the 1990s, he inaugurated Union Summer, uh, bringing young people into the union movement. And on college campuses, um, I saw this, I'm sure Leon saw it as well, there was a surge of interest by young people in the union movement. Um, and by 1999, there was a grassroots effort on college campuses to fight sweatshops, resulted in the creation that year of um, the Worker Rights Consortium uh, of United Students Against Sweatshops, USAS. So young people were getting involved. That was part of the coalition that was being mobilized in Seattle. Environmentalists were involved. Labor was involved. And it was really a fight for what the new global order will look like. Uh, and it was a really hopeful moment. Teamsters and Turtles, as Leon said, came together. Um, but it was really just about 19 months later that we had 9-11. Uh, and just suddenly, you know, the mood of the country changed. And, and, and even before that, of course, we had the contested election of 2000 um, in which the Supreme Court named George W. Bush president. Um, those two events, the 2000 election and then shortly thereafter 9-11, they really, I think, began to dramatically close a window that had opened and I'd that throw in, Seattle and I, was yeah. part of. Yeah, go I'd ahead. throw in one other uh, yeah. Event in, moving in the same direction, which was in 2001, early 2001, uh, China enters the WTO. Right. Yes. Right. So right. you, you, yeah. this, despite all of this mass opposition, the, right. the, the they were still able to ram China through the WTO, which was a crucial building block for a for for a global economic change, uh, which then had a dramatic impact, immediate and dramatic impact on a lot of uh, lower lower wage American manufacturing. Absolutely. I think in, in years to come, we'll look back on those few years mm -hmm. as a just really profound turning point toward the world that we're now in, which is one of real growing inequality, um, the rise of a 1% economy, um, the, the kind of global world order that um, Leon is referring to. Well, I mean, we just talked about, you know, the AFL, the CIO, the Knights of Labor. Now you're talking about trade. You're talking about globalization. So i got to ask the question, you know, why are there no – I mean, we have, you know, unions that are international unions. That means, you know, they have uh, they have branches or locals in Canada, basically, mm -hmm. at this point. There are no, I would argue, and, and you guys are the experts, but correct me, but, you know, where are the international unions that can counter, you know, the, the power of these global companies? Well, that's a good point, but I think the, uh, all that we have for labor protection, except for 
we, there are a few uh, effective international uh, transnational unions or, or inter- unions from one country working with those of another in effective ways. And I would say, we, Joe mentioned the SEIU earlier, in some cases in the security industry, right. um, where one company operates in multiple countries, uh, Securitas, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Germans and the Americans have worked very well together. Um, it also, uh, that's true of longshore unions and, and Siemens unions to a degree um, have worked. But in general, um, the problem is how does the marketplace, how is the marketplace regulated? The global marketplace is regulated in certain areas um, in, in terms of like, or the global economy is regulated. Fishing rights are regulated internationally. Uh, uh, environmental standards, there are international environmental standards. But in the labor front, there's really no um, so satisfactory standards uh, that step in to um, slow down uh, transformation or even the erosion of a, an entire economy, especially a whole regional economy, whether it's the Midwest or the this American Southeast textile belt or whether it's the Midlands in, in Britain, um, in the case of dramatic shifts in uh, trade and wage structure. So to me, that suggests that going all the way back to the Bretton Woods type agreements that I was mentioning, the IMF, the World Bank, the GATT, WTO, they needed to, well, these these same agreements that helped to set up um, trade among nations ought to have some um, uh, safety clauses in them to protect workers in one nation from dramatic changes. Uh, and, and they don't exist to this day, and they need to be renegotiated. And that's where, and the, the labor movement itself can't do the, all the lifting. Uh, it's got to be a combined political uh, and and worker action. But but I guess I'm asking, and we'll, we'll wrap up shortly. But I'm asking. I know that there are uh, some organizations where the you know various international unions you know come together. But you know, in an age of this increasing, increasingly dominant globalization, it it just seems. Like there should be more serious talks. I mean, again, I'm just sort of following up on you know this history where we've looked at these efforts to build structures nationally here in this mm-hmm. country, um, and it may be something for a whole other uh, time. But I'm just curious: have there been any talks, or what is the current status of those sort of global labor networks, or whatever one would call them? Well, it's it's the old problem writ large. I mean, it's the problem that the AFL was trying to solve in the U.S. Mm-hmm. How do you achieve unity and yet have the autonomy necessary in different settings to, to fight as you need to fight in those settings? Um, on the global stage, um, the situation is, is magnified to the nth degree, obviously, because across the globe there's such a variety of... Um, conditions in terms of rights that workers enjoy and so and and the regulation of the global economy is rather limited as Leon points out so how do you build you know international unions um, in that structure it's a difficult problem there has been in in recent years the the effort to focus on employers who have uh, operations in multiple countries as Leon talks about there are also 
global federations of unions in particular sectors, and they cooperate with each other. Um, often that cooperation can go pretty far. Um, uh, the German unions really pitch in strongly to help CWA in the United States organize Deutsche Telekom's operations here in this country. Um, but in terms of how you build a structure uh, that's really robust across international lines, that's still a work in progress. Where there's an identifiable product like um, uh, the Gap or uh, Ivanka Trump's uh, clothing line that you can identify who the workers are and what conditions, then then you can take can consumer action can be a powerful right. factor in, in making some change. But and where you have uh, unions in both places, um, like between the U.S. and Germany or other places in Europe, then they can have leverage. But where you have um, basic manufacturing going on in a country that represses its labor power, its labor movements, like China, um, then who are you going to ne negotiate with? And the products are not even... Uh, I mean, virtually everything, uh, almost every, at least every other thing that Walmart sells is coming out of China. Um, so uh, it's it's hard to have. It, then it seems that only some kind of political uh, laws or international laws um, are could do the job. Okay, let's move on. I'm Seems like there ain't nobody wants to come down here no more. They're closing down textile mill across the railroad tracks. Woman says these jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back to your hometown. This is George Ferencall with the Office of Professional Employees in Washington, D.C. On December 7, 2009, delegates to the founding convention of the National Nurses United, NNU, in Phoenix, Arizona, unanimously endorsed the creation of the largest union and professional organization of registered nurses in United States history. The 150,000-member union was the product of the merger of three Groups. All right, next up, uh, December 7th, uh, 1888, uh, Haywood Brune is born in New York City. He's a journalist, a columnist, and uh, for our purposes, a co-founder in 1933 of the Newspaper Guild, My Union. Um, okay. And uh, so I'm curious about a couple of things. One is... This is, you know, Newspaper Guild, of course, we've talked about, you know, uh, craft organizing, we've talked about industrial organizing. So the Newspaper Guild strikes me as a whole other sort of field. So I'd like to sort of right. talk about what was going on there. And then if we could, 
uh, bring it up to current day uh, because that's a field that is, in fact, I will say that the Newspaper Guild is no longer the Newspaper Guild. It is now the News Guild because um, newspapers <laughs> uh, are few and far between these days. And so now part of the communications workers of America. That's right. That's right. So, Joe, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So I, I bet most people have not heard the name Haywood Bruin and no. don't, don't know much about unions and newspapers. Um, this union movement emerged in the 1930s alongside the unionization efforts that were happening for industrial workers that actually a lot of these reporters were covering um, and seeing workers, you know, organizing in all kinds of settings. Newspaper reporters in the 1930s, and at that time, um, Bruin worked for the New York World Telegram, um, were often making less than the people who ran the printing presses, members of the International Typographical Union, one of the longest unions uh, in its history in the United States, a very strong union. Its local in New York was called Big Six. It was a really powerful union. Its members were really uh, earning good money. Um, often newspaper uh, reporters were earning less as well than the people who were driving the trucks, dropping newspapers around town, Teamsters and others. And so they decided to organize a union in the 1930s. Uh, Bruhn originally started out with his colleagues in the guild within the AFL. By 1936, they departed to uh, join with the CIO that was then emerging. And over the course of the 1930s, many newspapers uh, formed unions, um, and unions within the industry um, played a really important role in defending reporters um, and defending the institution of a free press, I would say, over time as well. So I guess a question, and certainly this becomes you know, even more relevant you know, as public sector workers start to organize, is that, you know, Crafts folks, you know, who, uh, crafts organizing, which came, as we've talked about before, out of this militant you know, socialist, I mean, a real sort of political ferment, right? Um, and then you've got industrial organizing where you've got, you know, really hard work and you've got all these people working in one place. When you start to get into more of this sort of the service economies, you wind up with, you know, a lot of these folks kind of, you know, are not always thinking of themselves as the laboring masses necessarily right mm -hmm. and so it seems to me that that that's always been a bit of a, a struggle uh, I think for for folks who are organizing in those I mean it's even to call you know the newspaper industry even though I know it's a term that's right. used it's not thought of in the same way it's true it crosses some traditional divides between who's a worker and who's yeah. not a worker but I think a couple of things moved in the direction of, that would uh, lead people to want to identify with the labor movement and even as, to some extent, as workers. And one was who owned the industry, who mm -hmm. controlled, who were the employers. Once upon a time, uh, you had hundreds and hundreds of small newspapers spread across the country, very small shops, not so different from other small, like blacksmith shops in the 19th century. You had uh, like a like a one-horse shop in the case of a uh, uh, small towns often had the editor who was himself a, something of a compositor and maybe a couple of journeyman writers uh, but that had changed the, the newspapers themselves had clearly become big business and they and moreover their editorial positions the bigger they got uh, tended to be more conservative and more tied to other 
uh, capitalist enterprises. So it, they're clearly uh, increasingly the, the writers and those who work for the paper saw themselves in more of an antagonistic relationship. They saw their interests being different from the owners of the press. That combined with another, uh, I think, um, influence, which was that even within the labor movement and certainly within the larger uh, radical culture, uh, which labor was a part, there, going back to the Knights of Labor, there had been an identification not only of workers who used their hands, but so-called brain workers. Um, mm-hmm. That um, that uh, these the people who use their imaginations and their creativity, if they were within a wage structure, they were workers, uh, and so there, the the guild. W- actually saw itself as as an industrial union, as part of the Mm -hmm. CIO formation, um, alongside other budding professional unions. There were early moves among doctors as well as teachers, lots of other uh, professional groups to unionize. Um, Again, they all had in common an attempt to maintain control over their enterprise so that they, because the essence of a profession was partly the notion of control, that you had the knowledge and you should control the enterprise. And as those enterprises became more corporatized, uh, more hierarchical, um, many, many of workers saw the need to fashion a, protect, a protective form and a union, even if the union looked a little different than a classic blue-collar union, uh, was the, uh, a chief uh, opportunity for them. Well, and one reason why to remember, you know, the guild and this moment of its formation is that it complicates our remembrance of the 1930s. It wasn't just industrial workers. It wasn't just auto workers and steel workers. It was office and professional workers. It was uh, newspaper reporters. One union that was formed at the same time of, uh, that the newspaper guild came into existence was AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, so public sector workers. Um, All of these sorts of workers were beginning to form unions in the 1930s for the reasons Leon says. Actors also, would that have been around the same time, or is that? The Actors Union also comes out Mm -hmm. in this period as well. So the arts. In the arts, Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Another influence I, I think probably fed into the guild was the um, uh, WPA, the Works Progress Administration, in the 30s employed uh, so many so-called brain workers in the in projects like the uh, the Federal Writers, the Art Federal Writers Project, the Federal Arts Project, uh, the um, uh, uh, historical um, what was it called the um, uh, a lot, a lot of the historical uh, records um, right. survey that right. uh, that uh, combined uh, local records. Th- these are all had federal funding, and they brought uh, writers into contact with other workers, uh, and they s- identified with the New Deal movement, uh, so that the guild uh, easily accommodated itself to the. FDR, the larger New Deal coalition with with other workers. And this effusion of union interest among brain workers, as Leon says, 
um, helps us understand the significance of what would happen in 1947 with the Taft-Hartley Act, because Mm -hmm. one of uh, its least appreciated provisions at the time was a provision that said if you did anything that uh, had any managerial function in it, you you weren't eligible to join a union. So it tried to draw a really stark line Mm -hmm. between who's a worker and who's not, in part in an effort to take people out of being able to collectively bargain who might be defined as brain workers. Um, and, and that was part of its long-term impact, I would say. Well, so that brings me to where I want to sort of wrap up this section, which is, you know, fast forward to today when, mm-hmm. you know, there are fewer and fewer people making stuff and more and more people, you know, doing what would be called brain work. And we'll talk another time about the workless future. <laughs> um, but, you know, let's just talk right now about, you know, I mean, again, just in, in – in the newspaper, just going back to the News Guild, and a lot of those folks, um, you know, are, you know, this stuff is published online uh, in real time. And uh, I think probably a lot of newspaper owners were thinking this was going to be great because they'd be able to get rid of a lot of folks. Uh, and also a lot of these new, uh, new tech uh, uh, companies, you know, doing online publications. Uh, didn't need as many people. So, you know, you walk into a modern publication, you don't see, a, you know, the kind of newsroom you see in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times, a much, much smaller operation. So um, can you talk a little bit about that, Joan? Sure. Um, well, right now, and you know a lot about this, Chris, I think, is uh, the Washington Post is a prime example of some of the trends you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's really going through a lot of transformation in recent years. They're in the middle of a very sticky labor negotiation right now. They are owned by Jeff Bezos, as most people know, of Amazon. Um, and he is, for our time, certainly analogous to some of the figures Leon was referring to in that earlier time was people like William Randolph Hearst, who owned so many newspapers and also was one of the people becomes kind of the, the opponent against which the Guild is directing its energy. Here you have, though, somebody in, in Bezos who's just far on a far grander, bigger scale. Hearst I mean, could never of, dream. No, nah, never, never <laughs> anything close, right? And but yet, but, but yeah. similarly anti-union. I mean, mm, Bezos built... Progressive, you know, quote-unquote. Progr- politically but, progressive, yeah. but, but almost completely anti-union, right. which has been sort of fascinating, right? And, you know, Hearst defined himself as a Democrat and a populist. Right. I mean, uh, but, you know, so... I was with someone last night who was saying that... If the Democrats really want to field a successful candidate, they they need to uh, recruit Bezos. (laughs) I I don't know if that's been separate uh, podcast, but yeah. But 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 what's interesting uh, um, is that uh, I don't know if I'd want to say a lot, but uh, it goes to some of what's happening. You talked earlier about Union Summer and maybe some of the fruit of that, but. Uh, a lot of these newer uh, publications, uh, younger journalists, are now organizing. And I wondered if you had some thoughts on that. You know, that's really interesting. If you look at one of the hottest areas in recent years for the formation of unions, it's in new media. Uh, Websites like Politico, Mm -hmm. Forming Unions. Um, There's a a surge of interest in... uh, folks who are practicing journalism today and its new forms for banding together and realizing we have to protect ourselves collectively 
especially in this new uh, environment and on this new platform, still uh, an evolving platform, uh, where if we don't join together in, in uh, uh, protecting each other, um, we're not going to be able to make this sustainable work. Well, and I think it's interesting because a lot of the issues uh, are, are really similar. If you listen to folks in new media talk, you know, it's the same kinds of things you would have heard from people, frankly, in the 30s. You know, you've got you've got basically 24-hour publishing now, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, when you had a certain schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and so you've got people working incredible. And then, in fact, there are people who are basically never off the clock, right? right. Because you can always be reached on your phone mm-hmm. and you can file from anywhere. And so it's the... You you know, the modern equivalent of speed up and, right. and sweatshops. And so it's fascinating that you've got this sort of bright, shiny technology that we all love. Right. I, mean, I love being able to get these constant updates, but there are people behind that and working mm-hmm. under and, and, and pay to right. pay, you know, because uh, you know, they're, anybody's a citizen journalist now, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't have to pay them. <laughs> I think uh, we can predict that in these new platforms, the, there will be grievances, and people will uh, will f- find ways to protest and find ways to act together. Whether they can find those ways within the archaic, increasingly archaic structure of the National Labor Relations Board and the the, the cumbersome uh, rules that Joe has alluded to before about who can who counts and who doesn't count as an employee, that remains to be seen. And I, I'm rather skeptical that short of a major revision of those, that framework that you can expect people in this new media world to work to create unions within that structure. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. I want to thank you both uh, for, for being with us this week. Thanks so much. Great to be thank you. Labor History Today is produced by Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. This week's music included... There is Power in a Union by Billy Bragg, My Hometown by Bruce Springsteen, and The Mannington Mind Disaster by Hazel Dickens. We have links to the complete songs on the Labor History Today podcast page. Check them out. This has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next week.